Welcome to Borderlandia, the podcast where we embark on a journey to explore and celebrate the cultural heritage of the borderlands. I'm your host, Alex Lapierre, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this immersive exploration of the rich tapestry that makes up our binational region. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to this episode of Borderlandia's podcast. We are joined by Jack Williams of the Center for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. And this week, we are going to be talking about a really fun subject, uh, some of the traditional foodways of this area that, we, that we're from and we live in, the Sonoran Desert, going back to the indigenous and the Spanish colonial times. So, Jack, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the traditional foodways of the Sonoran Desert? Well, I, I think one of the most striking things is the continuity between Sonorense's cuisine and colonial cuisine is, is greater than in some other areas of Mexico, I would say. And the cold question is, how did that cuisine come into being? Because it is a distinct hybrid, Native American and European traditions. It is, on the one hand, Spanish, but it's also Central Mesoamerican cuisine. And, and of course, the local native peoples also contributed to it. So I think the most striking thing, of course, is when we look at the dishes, the dishes we eat today are far more uh, refined and probably more palatable than what people were eating in the 18th century. But if we were magically transported back to a meal in the Presidio era or one of the missions, I think we'd recognize most of the food and it would taste pretty decent. Yeah, what, what were some of the, the kind of the hallmark dishes back in the Spanish colonial period that we could encounter if we were transported? Um, you know, I've heard of pinole as being one of the really big dishes. Could, could you talk about that? Yeah, the number one food for the frontier was cecina or charqui, jerky. So because of the uh, seasonality of harvesting beef, a lot of dried beef went into the cuisine and and it was generally prepared in a kind of a stew in one form or another that we would call pozole and, and pozole-like dishes. So pork-based pozole was very rare, but beef-based pozole was common and pozole had a lot of plasticity, so it included whatever vegetables were at hand. And most of the vegetables you see on the tables now would be available, but they were much more seasonal. And um, there were probably times of the year that you just didn't see much of certain varieties we're commonly using now because we can ship them in from Chile and places like that. But yeah, pozole. So if you can find uh, various recipes for carne seca, but um, it was by far the most common variant. And we had a, a lot of information about processing cattle and um, reducing the beef to, to jerky and then mixing it back in, reconstituting it. And they also used a lot of what archeologists often called this bone grease. So they, they boiled the bones and they extracted marrow and basically put it up in jars. And then they would re-add that material back into the cecina. Because uh, to be honest with you, pure cecina is really salty and not very tasty. Yeah, so you have this kind of this idea behind preservation, right? This kind of central unifying theme here uh, as far as the food history goes. You have, you know, dried beef, the cecina. Uh, you have dried chilies. You have dried corn. Um, really, really taking advantage of our important resource, the sun here, which is, you know, omnipresent. Could you speak to what would be other, the other complementary foods beyond the, the cecina? Well, I think it depended on where you were, but um, a significant amount of food also was brought in through traditional hunting and gathering of one sort or another. Like um, when military operations were going on, the advance guard often were always also on the lookout for like deer and antelope and anything they could kill and turn into dinner. 
So there was a significant amount of protein that came in through hunting larger animals. And then depending on where you were, they would process other kinds of wild plants as well. One of the favorites for the soldados was uh, agave. And uh, they processed agave hearts, probably to some extent like the uh, the Apache Indians did that were, you know, the mescaleros got their name from the mescal they processed, not not into alcohol, but cooking the, the hearts of the agave in sand. And there are various places you can find in the desert where there are pits that relate to agave processing, some of which probably date to colonial times. So, and it, it was really a pretty wide array of whatever was available they would turn to. So all sorts of wild plants. The, the, the general rule of thumb is that the frontier diet was additive rather than replacing. So people ate whatever they were used to. And in addition to that, they added the new fruit food substances, which included beef and uh, to a smaller extent, things like chicken and pork and horse. But the, um, the other thing I think you would have noticed is that the beef they were eating was way tougher than what we're used to. I mean, uh, this stuff is a uh, range probably from shoe leather to, you know, you could cut it with your teeth if you were lucky. So a, a lot of the recipes they develop seek to pulverize or to really beat the bejeebers out of the, the meat that's going into their dishes. And, and their, their diet probably was significantly not meat protein. For most people, they eat a lot of beans which were much easier to process. And, and of course, one of the mysteries of Sonora is why flour tortillas took off and, and were so highly favored at the expense of corn tortillas. Because in much of the rest of Mexico, corn tortillas are the rule and have been. Because one of the things I like to think about is how different this, this all was for the Spaniards that came to Sonora, because they would have, uh, they would have found the food in, in Sonora as different as uh, people from New England, because the food of Spain is, is just strikingly different, strikingly different. So the dishes and the way food was prepared all would seem rather strange to them. But one of the things that you see in the conquest and afterwards is that the, the Iberians as a whole were quite willing to take up whatever local foodways existed if they liked the food. And um, it was pretty hard to say no to the Sonoran cuisine. Jack, you mentioned um, kind of the real prevalence of, of wheat. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I, I know in Sonora, they also off, they have a pozole de trigo, so a pozole using the wheat berries rather than the traditional corn hominy. Well, this was part of the dynamics of frontier cuisine, is that you used whatever you had. But wheat was particularly important in the northern regions of Sonora because it provided a really good winter crop. And um, if you grow corn, it's a summer crop that you do in connection with more or less the monsoon season. But the wheat could be harvested in, in the middle of winter, and it provided a, a very important food supplement for native peoples. And it's quite clear that wheat interjected itself into the frontier region well in advance of the presence of Europeans. So that we see wheat being grown along the Gila River and all the way over to um, Colorado very early, as early as the, you know, Kino starts to report these things. So that along with cattle and horses turned out to be so advantageous as ways of collecting calories and turning them into food that um, it expanded even more rapidly than the European presence did. So you can, you can really see it as a, a benchmark. So that's one reason why wheat became important. What is less clear is why corn didn't diminished. And part of it was there was a certain social status notice kind of conceived of in eating wheat versus corn. Wheat was always conceived of as being the more European, but turning it into tortillas like the Sonorenses did was a little bit different. And then making the uh, flat wheat tortilla like a sort of all powerful in comparison to the, to the more humble corn tortillas is one of those things you can't easily explain. It certainly didn't take place in Chihuahua or Nuevo Mexico or in California where corn tortillas remain the mainstay. 
And of course, part of the interesting thing about Mexico as a whole is that each region of the country has such distinct food. And most of this process of transformation has to do with the interaction of the newcomers and the native peoples. But in the case of Sonora, a lot of the cuisine really can be divided, like as I said, into three elements, sort of a local native contribution, the Mesoamerican native contribution, and the European contribution. So you get all three elements that are there and the creative ways they were put together. And I I used to love to talk to Big Jim, was a, one of the sources that I used to chat with about what he thought some of these food ways were like. And um, typical typical meal for a family living at the Presidio would have been, for example, a bowl of fazole, probably on occasion baked bread, on occasion much more frequently flour tortillas. The fazole probably had typically in it beef and um, and beans, uh, frijoles, but not everything else in the recipe was on an ad hoc basis. So if you had you know, a, a super abundance of chiles. Maybe it was richer than chiles than it would normally be. If you had um, tomatoes, you might try using them a little bit. A few of the foods that we're used to seeing wouldn't make an appearance. For example, potatoes were not being consumed in colonial times, but there would have been a, a pretty, it would have been a kind of a, a, a rustic version of this. The, the amazing thing too, is that if you get into the back country of Sonora, you can still find people eating these dishes. So they haven't completely disappeared in Sonora. And in, in most regions of what were the frontier, like California and New Mexico, that more rustic cuisine has is, is pretty much disappeared. It's been replaced. And when you look at foodways, it's always important to keep in mind that just as our foodways evolved, so did theirs. So it would be a mistake to just go into a modern day restaurant in Hermosillo and say, Oh, this is what colonial residents ate. Starting at that point is, is, a, is, is certainly a mistake. Now, in terms of going on like military operations, panole became very important, which was generally served, uh, you know, as a, as a powder mixed with water and then consumed, sometimes heated, sometimes at room temperature. And it was kind of a survival food, which you would eat when you wanted to have no campfires and to be real quiet. The other things, of course, that the, were, were commonly eaten were dozens of different types of cactus. You know, if it grew and it wasn't toxic, people probably ate it one way or another. And uh, I don't think there's much question that they would have eaten any kind of uh, protein they could get their hands on. So snakes and, and mice and anything like that, especially in the native diets, would have made an appearance. And you can find bits and pieces of some of these traditions elsewhere on the frontier too. I mean, for example, Hopi, if they have a problem with a mouse, they they gut the mouse and then they throw it into the, the bin to be processed into the meal that they turn into peaky bread. And I suspect the same was true of uh, varmints in, that were too much of a problem in, in Sonora. I think they ate a lot of that stuff. Now, the Europeans were more prone to not want to eat that stuff. So they probably had a diet with less of it. But at the missions in particular, I think you would have seen almost anything that crawled or moved could end up in the food pot. So it was a little different. You wouldn't expect that today. One thing that you really do notice that is pretty striking is the lack of seafood in the diet. And that really has to do with the, the reality of the uh, the coastal areas are not where the population was concentrated. So you don't see a whole lot of like fish bone associated with uh, Sonoran interior settlements. The rivers and streams just didn't have that much fish to uh, make it a significant area of contribution. Jack, during your archaeological in investigations, um, what about like the food material culture has really kind of stood out for you? Um, you know, whether it's the ceramics or perhaps the, the bones you've encountered. Is there anything in particular that stands out? Well, overwhelmingly, the food was processed using ceramic vessels that were planeware. The great abundance and majority of those planeware vessels were Native American produced. There was a smaller tradition of producing planeware and redware pottery in the presidios. 
So they were also manufacturing their own distinct ceramics. But what you don't see, of course, is uh, a lot of glazed vessels. Some lead glazed vessels were, were available, so-called glareware, but they were scarce. So most things got processed through plainware. And um, in terms of the food remains, the overwhelming abundance of food remains are, are uh, bones. And uh, they show a distinctive butchering practice, which, as I mentioned, is described at some length by Pfefferkorn. And um, basically, the bones were chopped apart and boiled to extract any kind of bone grease or any kind of protein that could be recovered from them. And cattle were by far the most frequently harvested domestic animal. And, and they were harvested seasonally, uh, avoiding the, the summer months where the meat would spoil really fast. And my impression is that at the very least, two or three families would go together to, to harvest a steer. So it was rarely that like one family would take out a whole steer. There was just too much meat to process too quickly. So probably we're looking at some kind of circumstance like that. And then, of course, at the missions and in the presidios, there were communal granaries. And these had a variety of, of course, hard corn and, and wheat would probably have been stored there. And to some extent, beans as well. There are a lot. There's a much larger plant community of domesticated plants that we know very little about, except they were around things like um, watermelons and things because they were raised by individual families and they weren't taxed by the government. And so they never entered any kind of like a granary or tax system. So there's never been a really detailed account. But there was a much greater diversity of food substances than you see in the official records, which relate, as I said, primarily to things that could be taxed or things that were being controlled. And of course, one of the interesting things about the frontier system was how the granaries worked. Because what you don't see in Sonora are individual family barns or, or granaries. And so much of the harvested food, like in the Presidios, was purchased by the government, went into a community-based alondiga, and then was redistributed either in, in lieu of pay or in exchange for cash back to the population. And that way they didn't have to have dozens of small granaries. And it was easier to control how much food was available. Um, but this pattern of kind of communal collective farming was very much a medieval pattern that came to the Americas and was common. Now, the system that worked out at the missions was somewhat different. And we, we have a lot of questions still about how it, it worked. But it's very clear that at least some food substances, when the missions were at their height, were being treated in the same way, being harvested by the community brought together into communal granaries, and then redistributed out from the communal granary. This was essentially the system, for example, at Tumacacri, where um, quite amazingly, one of the granaries has survived. So it gives us some idea of what the structures were like, because very few of the granaries are extant. There are some, some of the outer buildings survive, for example, in San Antonio, but the interior furnishings and how they were organized there's more evidence from Tim Cacri than there is practically any other place. And so in, in the granary, we could have, in the granaries of the missions and, and the presidios and the different settlements, we would have encountered, uh, you know, dried, dried sacina, dried beans, pinole, any, anything else like the, the, the dried chilies, perhaps? Yeah, I think there were a lot of things. Of course, the, the tricky part is to determine what things would have been kept on a household level. Uh, versus a community level. And I, I have absolutely no doubt that most, for example, Presidio families had some kind of private milpas where they were growing food. And, and also they had their sort of household level herb garden. And, um, and so you would have seen one of the mistakes that has gone into some of the research on the Presidios and, and um, on settlements in the North in general is that there's been a tendency to assume that only those things that are described in text existed. But we know from casual observers and the occasional mention 
that there was a great deal more that was being being raised. So, for example, your family might have its own little patch of watermelons. There may have been various kinds of uh, plants that you would use for seasoning that you would just keep in your household garden. So we know that was going on too. So it, it begs the question of what even some of these places would have looked like if you had visited them. But I think what you would have been surprised by was to see a lot of small cultivated areas around the habitations. I think that is pretty, pretty likely. And we know in other areas they existed. And in the, the few cases we have of maps and details like that, it's very apparent, very apparent. So you would have seen that, for example, in the, uh, when you look at the map of Tubac by Urrutia, you can see all the milpas of the garrison population, the suertes as they were called. And um, so a good portion of that food that was being raised out there would have ended up in the communal granary, which we assume was incorporated into the commandant's house. But what we, what we don't know is how many of those places also had little patches of like watermelons and other plants that would have been used for household basis rather than being government controlled, so to speak. And then right within reach of the house, you would expect some small amount of plants to be grown, particularly um, medicinal herb gardens and things like that. Jack, um, you know, kind of complementary to the archaeological record is, you know, the docu documentary record. Uh, you know, sometimes the, we have these mission supply lists that have survived where, you know, they're requesting their annual supply. One of the things that we see, you know, most frequently is, is the chocolate. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit and some of the imported items they would have had? Yeah, we're very fortunate that the huge amounts of records of supplies for both the Presidios and the missions exist. Thanks to Kieran McCarty, I have I don't know, a couple hundred pages of Presidio uh, supply documents from Sonora. And they take in a diverse array of exotic foods and, and, um, and all sorts of manufactured goods. But um, for example, during Lent, they were shipping up shrimp cakes from the Gulf. And uh, I actually got a chance to eat some of these in Guanajuato. And I was a little scared of them, to tell you the truth. Because I thought this is going to be so salty, but they weren't at all. They were actually quite tasty. But you see a lot of exotic things coming in. A couple of barrels of wine a year were sent to each Presidio. But one of the more common things that appear in these supply documents is chocolate. And chocolate, which is a, you know, a powdered cacao, basically. But chocolate then listed in probably over a dozen different forms. So it's sometimes described as being toasted, sometimes described as being just chocolate, sometimes described as being powdered. And so in any event, chocolate was a, a big, big item. And of course, chocolate was problematic to, to ship north. A lot of the chocolate was shipped in the form of chocolate bars that were very much like the like the Abuela brand chocolate cakes that you can get that, you know, you turn into hot chocolate. So they had a lot of sugar and cinnamon in them, but they were chocolate bars. And it got so hot in Sonora that Franciscans sometimes complained to not send them in the summertime because they melted before they got up to the frontier. But chocolate was the, the beverage that was the most commonly consumed the way that modern day Americans drink coffee. So it was a very, very common drink. I kind of suspect that it was served after mass on Sunday. And that was one reason that brought certain Indians in to go to mass was that they were counting on the chocolate after the, the service. But what we know for sure is that it was a it was a very important part of these food shipments. But but rice, you name it, some small amounts were being sent north. Things like um, candy, some exotic ham. I mean, a, a lot of stuff. And you have to remember that the commanders tried to, as much as they could, emulate the diets they were used to, in many cases from Europe. So they were trying to live with a cuisine that was more like the uh, traditional European cuisine. So you would almost certainly have noticed the difference 
in dining with the commandant compared to the average family, like living in the Presidios. Whether they were a Presidio family or an Indian family, they mostly dined sitting on the floor around the communal fire. So what you don't see is a lot of evidence for dining tables and chairs and things like that. So um, the typical family was sitting on the floor on patates surrounding a cauldron, which was often also being used to you know, prepare the pozole and dipping their flour tortillas into the pot and eating. And if you had gone to say like Anza's to the Comandante's house in Tubac, you would have been in a much more elegant situation where you would have dined in a European style with chairs and, you know, it would be quite recognizable to us. Not, not unlike how people were eating at the same time in Williamsburg in Virginia. So the, the commanders had their own private foodstuffs too. And even when the uh, military operations were undertaken, the, the soldiers' cuisine was not mixed with the commanders. And we occasionally get the names of commanders, not only of, of their staff, but we do have the names of a few of their cooks. And there were cook specialists often brought with them, it's sort of like a body servant. Uh, I remember Gaspar de Portola brought with him an Italian, a guy from Genoa, who got into some trouble with uh, abusing a mule on the trail. But um, Portola, among other things, was the first man to bring Italian food to California. And he, uh, he literally brought a pasta making machine with him on the trail. So the officer's mess was quite fancy. Um, they had cookies and ham and they were quite elegant. Now this does lead to an interesting question. Is it, you know, did someone like Anza follow that pattern or did he eat more or less with what the men were eating? Because one of the rules of good military leadership is you pretty much eat what your enlisted men are eating so you can know how far you can push them. So it's an open question. But I kind of expect Anza wasn't eating ham and cookies. But some of these military guys definitely were. It was almost always the case that priests would be invited to the officers' meals, whatever they were. So it was a very common thing to, uh, like on the trail, to uh, have the priests not dine with the average people, but rather the, the more elegant officers and their, get their exotic food substances. But it was definitely a, a class division between enlisted men and officers. And then between the Indians and the missionaries, I think you would have noticed it too. That detail about Gaspar de Portola uh, bringing the, the pasta making machine and the Italian cook is really fascinating. I've never heard of that, of that before. Could you talk about a little bit more? How, how, how did you discover that in his journals? Or Well, there are tremendous numbers of documents related to the uh, supplies of the Portola expedition. And so the pasta machine is listed there. And then in the list of the participants, this Genovese guy is, is mentioned. And then, as I said, he got into trouble. I, I, as I recall, and maybe he was beating his mule or beating a mule and he had to be punished. And so there was some mention of him. But in, in looking at other occasional details about Presidio commanders, it was, it was seemingly very common, like at the Casa de, de Anza, which was the former Casa de Belderan in, in um, Tubac, one of the people there was probably a cook who worked full-time preparing meals for the Anza family. And I, as I recall, among the Tubac records, there's an occasional mention of a cook being there. So, you know, you don't think right offhand about people like professional cooks on the frontier, but they did exist. And that was because the officers were working hard as much as humanly possible to, to keep that European style of life that they knew when they were younger. And with someone like Anza, they were somewhat removed from that because he being a Creole, a Criollo, had never been to Spain. But my guess is that his family preserved a lot of Basque foodways. And, you know, even though he hadn't been to Europe, he did know that, that food tradition. So that's where that's coming from. And similarly, most of the priests came from social classes, whether Jesuits or Franciscans, 
who knew the, the better quality of life and would have sought to replicate it. And in a weird way that, that stood out probably to the enlisted men as an example, you know, how the rich people lived. And by contrast, their way of life was much more humble and very much tied directly to the Mesoamerican foodways. But to be honest with you, if you'd gone to Spain and visited poor people, they were eating on the floor too. And so it's not just in the Americas that poor people were uh, less than uh, luxurious in their dining habits. Yeah, that's one thing I really stood out, that when I visited in Madrid, the Lope de Vega house was that they they sat estirado, or in the, in the, in the Moorish style, on, on the floor. Well, going back to the 16th century, you get more and more complex foodways in Spain relating to the North African and Moorish traditions. So certainly in the 16th century, it would not have been unusual to have men and women eat separately. And um, there were even traditions of wealthy people in their furnishings where you can see a kind of like platform stage complex called an estrado de complemento, which was essentially a big wooden platform where there would be pillows and the women of the house would normally be found there. And they would, they would dine there. And I mean, these are the proper ladies of the home. They weren't the uh, serving staff. And the men would dine separately and they would use tables and chairs, but the women wouldn't. And I've seen this recreated in one living history museum in Argentina, there's a wonderful archaeological park at a place called Santa Fe on the Rio Parana. There was a sizable late 16th, early 17th century town that was abandoned and has been studied off and on since the 1940s. And they recreated one house and they had a light and shadow show in the house. And they had recreated the Estradiosa de Cumplimiento and they turned the lights off and they talked about the ladies of the house did. And you could really see that tradition, which was North African and Moorish in point of origin survived. And it also appears in California, curiously, at the time of Vancouver's visit, one of his, his physicians, a band named Archibald Menzies, describes how shocked they were when they went to visit the commandant's house and the commandant's wife was sitting on this big wooden platform and said, oh, these people are so poor, they don't even have money to have a table and chairs. And they just couldn't understand what was going on. So those Moorish customs did survive. They probably survived up until the time of the Wars of Independence in Mexico. I think there's a comment by somebody on the Pike Expedition that when they were in Chihuahua City, it was unusual for ladies to sit in chairs. But that's a whole different world than we're used to thinking of. And so you would have seen that among the wealthy in a place like Zubak. But the average soldier, mixed gender, whole family sitting around the pozole pot would have been the norm. And we saw a lot of evidence for this in the archaeology. There was just, you know, you could see household dining like that very clearly. One of the interesting questions that have been raised is, would there be a dramatic difference in the foods that were available? to say like the Anzas versus the other families. But what we found was they were all eating similar foods in terms of the evidence we could find. So we found traces of, you know, corn and some other beans. And of course, in both of areas, a superabundance of bones, mostly of cattle, but also to some extent of horses that were being processed for their meat. So the Anzas, maybe dined differently, and maybe their meals were quite significantly different, but the raw material they were making the food out of appears to be pretty similar. Now, the Anza certainly had greater access to those exotic foods, but um, I think it would have been, um, it was somewhat surprising that people like Hank Dobbins had suggested that there would be this concentration of, of luxury goods and luxury foods at the commander's house, and we didn't find that in our work at all. And I haven't found it at other presidios as well. The pattern seems to be the commanders were eating basically the same food stuffs as the enlisted men. But the other thing that you start to see wherever you look on the frontier is that 
they've sometimes suggested that the life on the frontier was, you know, uh, one of hunger and of, of want. But generally speaking, I think food was more abundant living on the frontier than it was living in urban places like Mexico City or Madrid. There was more food available and a great deal of that food didn't get recorded in official records because it, it wasn't um, controlled or taxed. And, and of course, adding to the quality of life immensely were all the foodway contributions of the Native American peoples that were local. So the Spanish soldiers were quite quick to learn that, you know, you could process and eat mesquite uh, pods and things like that. And the frontiersmen, if anything, were extremely adaptive. And so they learned the local Indian foodways as much as they could and used them. And, you know, drinking saguaro wine and stuff like that was something I'm sure the soldiers knew about. In fact, the soldiers, in their interest in agave, became quite ex expert at processing, for lack of a better term, I would call it moonshine. Pretty much all the Sonorenses were moonshiners. So they were all producing stuff like Bacanora out in the backwoods. And um, near Tucson, for example, if you go to Reddington Pass, there's a place called Mescal. And Jim Officer told me that's where the soldiers went that were brewing up their booze in Tucson, is where they headed out to, because there were good stands of agave there that could be processed. And to, to make Mescal doesn't take much technology. You just have to wait for the right time of the year when the moon is full, put a tap into an agave plant, put a bucket under the tap, collect the liquid, let it set for about a week and a half, and voila, you've got pulque. If you take the pulque and you retort it once with a still, you get mezcal. And if you retort it twice, you get tequila. Well, very little of it got turned into tequila, but tons of it got turned into mezcal. And of course, pulque was a very common drink. It's vile. I've had it. Pulque is not for me. It has, you know, you know how some tequilas have a really kind of rude flavor, caustic flavor? That's strong in pulque. And in, in most mezcal, it's bad too. You don't get things as good as Bacanora very often. But it, it does exist, of course. And the Sonorans were really good at making it. When Tito de Croix got to Arispe and started to set up his program, he tried to suppress making mezcal. And he finally gave up and turned over to, to tax it instead. He, he finally determined it was better to tax it than it was to try to stop it because he's, he was never going to get the soldiers to stop making it. So um, the reality was that if you had gone in for a family dinner, you were pretty likely to be offered a swig or two of, of mezcal. And um, you probably would have drank in it, consumed it out of a small ceramic cup, maybe out of one of the tin enameled ware, like myolica, like a teacup, but more frequently out of a plainware cup or a lead glaze cup. So kind of rustic, but uh, no doubt there was some good good stuff out there for people to drink. And actually, on, on, among all the different groups on the frontier, I think the Sonorans probably were best known for the highest quality of uh, their moonshine. But yeah, we don't think about the soldiers as part-time moonshiners, but that's probably reasonable to think of them that way. And it explains in part why there isn't a whole lot of wine being shipped to the frontier. Because, you know, typically where there are soldiers, if they can get alcohol, they're going to procure it. Yeah, I heard that was one of the considerations in uh, when the U.S. Dragoons rolled into Tucson. Why not to establish their installation there in Tucson was because the commander was worried about the availability of the moonshine. And so they moved down south to the former Calabasas mission. Yeah, well, there's no question that Mescal was a big part of the alcohol culture of the frontier in Sonora. And um, it's not been studied nearly as much as it could be, I guess, potentially. But especially given the economy of modern day Sonora and the importance of uh, local products like Bacanora, you would think that there might be more interest. And there are documents about it, by the way, that I've seen in the, uh, like the Ramo de Provincias Internas, because the Croy came up with a very elaborate scheme to to tax it because, you know, it wasn't going to be easy to figure out who was making it and how much they should pay. But they he tried. He tried. It was one of his economic reforms. Of course, for breakfast, most everybody was drinking what they call atole. 
but it wasn't the the stuff that you can buy at the the local commercial today it was it was more of a stew like substance and, and once again like the pozzoli they ate in the main meal of the day which would have been in the early afternoon typically it was its particular formula depended on what was available so you basically it could be much more of a stew like dish than uh than a modern day atoli, but it typically did have ground hominy in it. So that's what made it atoli and the fact that you were eating it for breakfast. What you didn't see a lot of were things like enchiladas and uh, some of the things that I think we're, we're more commonly used to. I, I do think that over time you would have seen those, but one of the interesting questions is, when did those particular dishes become prominent in the cuisine of Sonora? Because it took a while, certainly, for the dynamics of the Mesoamerican food traditions to integrate into this. And at some point, the foodways also evolved. And this is important to understand because that regional cuisine, which is such a delight in, in Mexico, especially in the north, the reason why food, Mexican food is different in Texas and New Mexico, Chihuahua, Sonora, and um, California is because of the evolution of the foods. So there was a time when they were probably very similar, but then changed over time and, and then became distinct regional traditions. And this is, reflects this broader question of how it was that culture changed in the dynamics of, of the frontier. Because if you look at somebody like Anza, Anza's career really spreads quite dramatically over four regions, four provinces, really. He was very much involved in California. He was very much involved with Sonora, obviously. He was very much involved with New Mexico. And he was very much involved with what was Nueva Vizcaya, the, the El Paso area, which was part of Chihuahua. So all those regions, he spent some time. But when you look, for example, at such details as the church furnishings, the nature of architecture, the basic lifestyle of the average people, they're quite different and distinct in those regions. And um, are those differences that we see today, say, between the religious architecture of New Mexico and California or New Mexico and Texas, are they a product of our misunderstanding? Are they a reality? Were they that different in colonial times? And if they were that different, how would it have influenced someone like Anza? You know, would, it, would he have noticed, for example? But for example, you just don't see the tradition of local folk manufactured religious images of New Mexico in Texas or in California, or to my knowledge, in Sonora. It's, it's a different tradition. And there is some evidence that that emerged quite recently, maybe after 1850. And if that's the case, then we're, we're really presenting a very distorted view of colonial New Mexico to visitors to places like the Palace of the Governors, where they'll talk about Anza being there and things like that. And, you know, if that's not the reality of the world he lived in, then um, we should make some efforts to correct that. But in any event, this distinctive regionalism uh, was a reality. And we definitely get individuals who are crossing over the frontier and, and being involved with all these different areas. And um, what did it look like to them? And similarly in the foodways, you know, uh, although pozole in Santa Fe is still a different dish from what it is in Central Mexico, but I have to tell you the typical bowl of pozole served in Santa Fe is, is a lot spicier than the one that you'd get in Sonora, a lot spicier. I mean, you could etch steel with some of the pozole I've eaten in downtown Santa Fe. So tastes of people were quite variable too. Jack, one of the interesting things you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast was kind of this tripartite origin of the of the cuisine. One of the one of those was the was a central Mexican or Mesoamerican component. And you just gave this example of, you know, how spicier the cuisine of New Mexico is. And, you know, the founding of New Mexico, you have in Santa Fe that Barrio de Analco, right? The Tlaxcalans, Central Mexican allies. And you also have this really strong Chile tradition, which I don't think was there naturally prior to the arrival of the Spanish and their allies. Could you speak a little bit about, about that? Um, you know, you had that famous Chimayo 
uh, land, race, Chile there in northern New Mexico as well? Well, one of the things is uh, about Chile is it often reflects the environment. And generally, the drier the environment, the hotter the Chile's. So part of it is just a reflection of the growing conditions of New Mexico. But beyond that, there's clearly a taste that developed for heavily spiced Chile spiced foods in New Mexico, which still exists today. Uh, one of the classic stories of Awadavi in the Hopi country, which was, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Hopi Pueblos were considered to be a part of New Mexico in colonial times when they were under Spanish rule. But Awadavi had, of course, converted to Christianity, and the Indians there were very much into adopting Spanish culture. And when they attacked the Pueblo, one of the stories is that the Awadavi male population retreated into the kivas, to their subterranean religious structures. And um, this was after they'd already pretty much killed all the Spanish that were in the settlement. But then the, the other Hopi decided to get rid of them as well. And what they did was they took and they, they collected chiles and uh, brush and they set it on fire and threw it down into the, into the kivas to kill the people that had retreated there. And they screamed at them that you guys love Chile so much, you can, you can die by it. Which is, to be honest with you, most Hopis don't want to talk about it because they consider the whole episode at Awadavi to be a fairly shameful story, the way that the population was wiped out by other Hopi. But um, it kind of speaks to this dynamic of people loving Chile and it being kind of a landmark of Europeanness. So I think Chile was a very popular spice. And of course, the, the history of how Chile was dom domesticated, it almost certainly emerges like a lot of the spices do to cover the taste of spoiling food. And uh, there's no question that both red and green chili can cover the taste of slightly spoiled food pretty effectively. So that probably had something to do with it. But there's, I, I don't think there's any doubt that for what, whatever reason, the Indian people, I think, of Nuevo Mexico were driving this. And their love for Chile has led to this more spicy cuisine that you see today in, in places like Santa Fe. But it doesn't explain it all. I mean, there, it's like one would think immediately that Chihuahuense's cuisine and Sonoran cuisine should be quite similar, given the mountains separate them, but not much else. But I have to tell you, eating food in Chihuahua is really different from Sonora. Working with Jorge Olvera, these were things that Jorge was really interested in. And he used to take me around to places where we could get traditional frontier food and we would try it. And it was like, surprise, surprise. Like he knew where there were markets you could go and get different kinds of cactus to try. And I, I found that really interesting. But there was a tremendous amount of survival food available. And, and that's one of the reasons why whenever I read some of these more extreme arguments about starving Indians in the missions and in the and presidio populations suffering horribly from hunger, I kind of laugh because there are so many foods that are available that are wild. You cannot imagine anyone starving to death. It's just it, it's only somebody something someone would say that was extremely ignorant of the reality. And of course, the other thing you have to bear in mind is that the soldiers, for example, often complain they can't get enough of their food, quote unquote. But you have to remember what they're really complaining about is not getting the foods that they're used to. It's not that they don't get enough to eat. It's that they want to get the stuff they're used to. So in some areas, that might mean that they're eating a lot of like uh, seafood or fish, and they're not used to a diet with seafood or fish. And they're complaining that they don't have enough beans and tortillas because that's what they, they would rather eat. And this is, you know, all you have to do is look at a modern military base in a third world country, and you'll see the same thing. They have plenty of food, but they're complaining they don't have any McDonald's food or any Burger King. And so that was the same, I think, for the Spanish military on the frontier. So, um, but what wasn't happening, I think, anywhere where people were starving to death. And the evidence for that is, is several different layers. One is the food remains we find in the archaeological sites. But another strong piece of evidence is when you look at the skeletal remains 
of uh, frontier populations, they don't show a lot of malnutrition. You know, I think if you went and excavated a major cemetery in Mexico City, or in Guadalajara, or in Madrid, or in Boston, or in London, you would find a lot more malnourished people than you do on the frontier. Probably over time, it meant the frontier people were a little taller, lived a little longer than the people did in the more urban and developed areas of the empire. Yeah. To this day, Sonorans are known for being some of the tallest people in Mexico uh, as well. So I would, I would say that's definitely a, a, a keen observation. That's probably a reflection to, to a significant extent of the protein. The more protein you eat when you're a juvenile, the more likely you are to get taller. So a lot of the stunted growth we see in early urban populations is a direct product of them not getting much protein in their diet. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would think so. I would think that the Sonorenses tended to be taller, bigger, stronger people. And it's, it's not a mystery. They got better food. And um, if they could escape getting, you know, in an Indian ambush or dying in a heat wave, they were in pretty good shape to, uh, to be physically strong compared to their counterparts in the South. You have to understand how miserable it was to be a poor person in Mexico City or in a place like Guadalajara compared to the frontier. I mean, I would much rather have lived in the North than in a big urban center in the South. If you were rich, it was different. But even the rich people lived in a world where basic sanitation and, and health ways were not, none of them even vaguely approached modern taste and sensibility. Awesome. Well, I think we're right at about an hour. I want to thank you, Jack, so much for this really wonderful and, and really fascinating conversation today. It seems like we could explore even further. I hope we can in the future. But I want to thank you very much and look forward to the next podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find more information by visiting us at borderlandia.org. We are a binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. Thank you.